As I said, Ruth is four chapters, so we're just going to take this outline in four pieces. And so we're going to begin with chapter one as we study Ruth's decision. And the narrative begins by giving us some context for the story. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now we immediately need to understand that the days of the judges, the days when the judges ruled, which was after Joshua and right up to the time of Samuel, they were very dark times in the history of Israel. Very, very dark times. In fact, all throughout the book of Judges, it repeatedly tells us that the people did what was right in their own eyes. That was the constant refrain. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And so the Lord would judge them by sending some sort of judgment upon them. And then eventually they would repent and the Lord would send a deliverer, one of the judges, to deliver them. Think of Samson and, and all of those guys, right? Uh, so that was kind of the time period. This is the time period that we're in. And if we continue on in the beginning, we see that there is a man named Elimelech and he chooses to leave the promised land during a famine. Now, we read famine and we should immediately read God's judgment upon His people because of their disobedience, because of their choosing to do what was right in their own eyes. And Elimelech chooses to leave the promised land and go to a foreign land. He leaves his home, which was Bethlehem, which means house of bread, which is kind of ironic because he's leaving the house of bread during a famine, and he goes to a land called Moab, which if you know anything about your Bible, Moab is one of the enemies of the Israeli people. They are not friends. In fact, in Psalm 60, verse 8, God describes Moab as his wash basin. Basically, my bathtub where I wash off all of my filth. That is what Moab is to God. Why is that? Well, the Moabites originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter when she got him drunk. That's in Genesis 19. And then the Moabites, they sought to curse Israel through Balaam. You can read about that in Numbers 22 through 24. And then the Moabite women went and sought to seduce the Israeli men and lead them astray after many false gods. And that's in Numbers 25. And most recently, most proximately to our story here with Ruth, in Judges chapter 3, we read that the Moabites actually conquered the land of Judah for 18 years and oppressed them, reigned over them for 18 years until the people finally repented and the Lord sent a deliverer. So Moab was no friend to Israel, and yet the text doesn't tell us why, but Elimelech chose to lead his family there. 
Now, even though the name Elimelech means my God is king, the narrative of the story is really trying to show us here that this was a man who did not trust in the faithfulness of Yahweh. And so, like so many others during this time, Elimelech chose to do what was right in his own eyes. And there in Moab, after leaving God's promised land, Elimelech dies. Now, one of the main characters of our story immediately appears after he dies, and this is Elimelech's wife, Naomi. And her name means pleasant, pleasant woman. But sadly, Naomi and the two sons that she and Elimelech had they too chose to stay in Moab after Elimelech died. And more than that, not only did the sons and Naomi choose to stay in Moab, but the sons also married two Moabite women, which was directly against God's law. Deuteronomy 7.3 made very clear, do not marry foreign women. They had the chance to return to Israel, but they stayed in a foreign country of sin. And this might seem like a small detail here, but it's really important that we understand that like her husband, Naomi continued to do what seemed right in her own eyes instead of trusting in the Lord's provision for her and her family. Now, Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God's faithfulness is always tied to His promised land, to His people, His provision to them through the land. And a sign of His people trusting in Him was dwelling in the land and staying there. Well, after staying in Moab for 10 years and having no children of their own, both of Naomi's sons, whose names, by the way, mean weak and sickly, how'd how'd you like to, hey, here's my son weak, here's my son sickly, pleasure to meet you, right? How about that, if that was your name? Well, they both meet the same fate as their father. Clearly, the Lord in the narrative here is trying to express to us that the Lord was not blessing this family. And let me just pause right here, because this is so central to understanding this whole narrative. This opening paragraph really sets up the key lesson for this whole story. Because it asks the question, are we, the people of God, going To trust in the Lord, especially when things get difficult? And are we going to follow His pay, His his way? Or are we going to do what seems right in our own eyes, leaning on our own understanding? Now, on one hand, Elimelech and Naomi, they can be seen with sympathy, right? I mean, they, they had two sickly sons, and the food had run out where they were living, What what were they supposed to do? So Elimelech, he makes a seemingly sensible decision and moves his family to a place where there was food that he could provide for them and sustain them. 
And then when Elimelech passed away, Naomi and her sons, they'd already been moved. There was food here. They decide to stay. I mean, it, it seems kind of reasonable, doesn't it? But the problem is that this wasn't what the Lord had clearly instructed His people to do. And this is an important point because we need to understand that there are things in our lives where the Lord, it's, it's unclear. It's not like Scripture says, you know, take this job and not that job, right? Or marry this person and not that person. Or live here and not there. Scripture doesn't do that for us. And those are times where we're called to exercise wisdom and discernment and ask, ask the Spirit of God to show us where He would have us live. But there are other times where the Lord does say, don't do this or do this. There is no gray there. And that's where, by the grace of God, we, we should seek to do those things, right? Amen? Well, the problem here is that it was black and white for Elimelech, Naomi, and her sons but they still did what seemed right in their own eyes. And let's just be honest, how many of us can fall into that same thing, right? Instead of trusting in the Lord, especially when times get very difficult, remember, famine, right? Difficult times. And instead of recognizing whatever sin that the Lord may be revealing in us, if any, and, and holding fast to His promises and His faithfulness, we so quickly stray into the greener pastures that the world promises. We, we listen to those whispery lies of the enemy and, and, and get taken in and deceived. Well, all I can say is praise God for His mercy and grace. Amen? And we begin to see that in verse 6, when God's blessing has returned to Israel. How do we know that God's blessing has returned to Israel? What does verse 6 say? There is no more famine in the land. And so now we are introduced to the two Moabite daughters-in-law of Naomi. And she urges them to return to their people, stay in Moab. Naomi has now chosen to return to Bethlehem since the famine has lifted. And she tells her daughters-in-law, look, you stay here with your people. And both of these women, if we read the text, are clearly very devoted to Naomi. In verse 10, it says that both want to stay with her. But Naomi insists that they remain in her own country. She basically gives this whole argument and says, look, you need to stay here. And while one of them, Orpah, decides to remain, the real heroine of our story, Ruth, did not listen to the reason of Naomi. And in verse 14, it says that Ruth clung to Naomi. The Hebrew word in verse 14 for clung, it, it describes loyalty to a covenant commitment. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 that God uses to describe a husband leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. It's, it's, it's covenant commitment. And so as Ruth 
clings to Naomi, she makes a very, very famous statement, often used in marriage ceremonies, in fact. And we can read it together in verses 16 and 17. It says, Ruth says, For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. We need to see the escalation there. In every single one of those commitments, Ruth is is going even farther with what she's committing to do. Ultimately, committing herself not just to Naomi, but actually submitting herself to the one true God, to Yahweh the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega. And right here we see Ruth's decision. She chose to commit to Naomi, and even more than that, to commit to following and serving Yahweh. Say all you'd like about Elimelech's lack of faith, and Naomi's for that matter, but there was at least enough presence of the Lord's truth and power in Naomi's life to draw Ruth to Yahweh. And that's a very important thing to see here. But the key thing that we want to look at is Ruth's decision for the Lord, choosing to submit to the Lord, especially in the midst of the bleakness going on around her. Her husband has just died world falling apart. And in our lives, we know this, there are going to be really bleak times, right? There are going to be times when things get flipped upside down. Orpah, the other um, daughter-in-law, had the best intentions, but in the end turned back to her people in Moab. It was Ruth alone who determined that regardless of the circumstances, she would stick by Naomi and, more importantly, trust in her God and devote herself to him as her king, her Lord. How do we respond in our own trials? Are we like Orpah or are we like Ruth? Do we go back to what we're comfortable with, trying to find that little comfort bubble again? Or do we cling to our God in those rough times? Do we listen to the call of the world? Do we go astray after the lies of the enemy and and rely on our own understanding? Or do we trust in our God? Again, this is the question that this whole narrative is asking us to think about and examine ourselves in. Now, you would probably expect Naomi to be excited that Ruth stayed with her, right? Right? Like, oh, you're going to stay with me? You're going to go back with me to... Oh, I'm so... Thank you so much, Ruth. That's just such a... You don't know what that means. Well, the text shows us that Naomi was nonplussed about Ruth's decision. We can read it literally in verse 18. It says, When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, 
She stopped talking to her. Done. Oh, you're going to go with me? Done. Why? Why would that happen? Well, remember, Ruth was a Moabite, and Naomi wanted to go back to Israel. Ruth would definitely not be welcomed by the people who were just oppressed for 18 years by the Moabites. And more than that, Ruth was a constant reminder to Naomi of Naomi's family's disobedience and lack of trust in the Lord. That person there just constantly reminding, yeah, my husband and sons are dead. And we didn't trust in God. We went to the Moabites. And practically speaking, Ruth was another mouth to feed, another body to clothe, another person that needed to be taken care of. Naomi was now a poor, destitute widow. Not a good person to be in ancient Israel. And now we're going to put two women together to try to take care of them? So we don't see a thank you to the heartfelt words of Ruth. We just see silence. And it's pretty clear that the Lord has some work to do in Naomi's heart. How many of us have been there? Yeah. And as if to put an exclamation point on Naomi's state of things, when the two women arrive in Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, we immediately hear Naomi that she is in a place of deep, deep bitterness. Verses 19 to 21 say, And the women of Bethlehem said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which remember means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So we see here that instead of acknowledging her family's disobedience and lack of trust, what what does Naomi do? Who does she blame? She blames God. She's got that finger pointed squarely at God, taking no responsibility whatsoever for what has gone on in her life. There's no repentance, and there's certainly no recognition of God's mercy to move Ruth to stay with her. Her eyes are fixed on who? Herself and her own misery, and she has become a self-proclaimed woman of bitterness who is just resentful of God. She's, she is the victim. And it's, it's a temptation, isn't it, when things are really terrible in your life to, to blame God and to become the victim. And that is what the enemy always tries to move us towards. We have to see that, guys. We just studied the armor of God, right? Which really is about how to battle what Naomi was going through. But there are times when those arrows get through and we get hit and it is hard. And this is what the enemy tries to get us to do. The Lord wants to soften us up and repent if necessary, if there's sin that he's showing us and and get us to fix our eyes on him 
while the enemy wants us to resent God and, and move away from Him and put our eyes on ourself and right where I stand in my current situation, which is just, oh, woe is me. And the last verse of chapter 1 tells us that they have arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest. And if you know the Jewish calendar, you know that the beginning of the barley harvest is Passover. And Passover is when the Jews celebrate their deliverance out of Egypt, their fresh start. That should be a context clue for you as to what the narrative is going to do. Ruth seems to recognize that this was the perfect time for a fresh start. And so we turn to chapter 2 and we see Ruth's devotion in action. Now, we need to know a little bit about the way God's welfare system works to understand this next chapter. According to Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, the poor weren't supposed to just get a handout. That's not how God's economy works worked. The wealthy, who were all the field owners, the ones who had the food basically, they were all commanded to leave extra produce and grain and all those things in their fields for the poor to gather for themselves. It wasn't just handed to them, but it was provided to them so long as they were willing to work for it. But the system only worked if the wealthy were generous with the poor. Well, Ruth comes and immediately she suggests to Naomi that she go and go glean in the fields. This is what it was called, to go and glean what was left over. She's willing to go and do the hard, hot, actually very dangerous work of working in the fields for the two of them. Work that is even more dangerous for her because she's a foreigner. See, what would happen is bandits would come along and they'd just steal from the poor people because there was never enough to go around. Why? Because the wealthy didn't provide it. They were greedy. They were selfish. They were sinful. And so it caused this cycle of poverty and this cycle of crime because of their lack of generosity. Yet Ruth remained devoted to Naomi and, more importantly, to honor her God by serving her mother-in-law. And do we read that Naomi is thankful? That she's happy about this? No, again, we see that there's no thanks offered. There's just a curt word of, okay, go ahead, my daughter. Off with you. Spit spot. Kind of that little, like, Mary Poppins attitude, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, Naomi here, she just, we're reading into the text, we don't know, but she, at least the way I see it, she seems kind of fixated on her own misery here, and she's paralyzed with inaction, not willing to actually move. Now, she was certainly capable of doing the work in the fields for herself. She wasn't so old that she couldn't work. Most commentators believe that she was in her late 30s to early 50s. Ladies, late 30s to early 50s, you can still work, right? All right? <laughs> but Naomi prefers to seem, seems to prefer to just kind of stay in her own bitter place while Ruth went out into the hot sun 
to do the work. And again, let's pause here and recognize that trust in the Lord does not mean waiting around for Him to do something. Like Ruth, we are called to get to work doing the things we know that He's called us to do while we wait for Him to move, while we wait for Him to show us the next step. When life knocks us around, we can't be like Naomi and sit and do nothing. Making excuses and and just demanding that God fix things already. Doesn't work that way. Trusting in the Lord means pursuing what we know He's revealed us to do. Faith is always active. There is no inactivity in the faith-filled follower of Christ. So Ruth sets to work, diligently gleaning in the fields, and she happened upon the field of a man who turned out to be a tremendous blessing from the Lord. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, in the Hebrew, it literally says here that as chance chanced, or we might say as luck would have it. (laughs) Of course, we know there's no such thing as luck or coincidence or chance. Proverbs 16.9 says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ruth knew what she had to do. And she was determined to work diligently and show kindness to Naomi and trust in the God that she had devoted herself to. And he led her right to the field of Boaz. Now, Boaz means strength. And in Scripture, the first words of a person are always very, very important. And we read here in verse 4, That Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered back, the Lord bless you. Now we immediately see here that this is a godly man, critically, who is loved by his servants. That's a huge detail. Because in those times, so many masters were not godly people. They did not treat their servants well. But clearly Boaz is because his servants pray for a blessing back on him. And as soon as he notices Ruth working in the fields, he asks about her. And once he learns who she is, he shows nothing but kindness to this Moabite foreigner. Now, maybe this was because Boaz's own mother was a foreigner. We studied her last week, you remember? Boaz's mom was the prostitute Rahab from Jericho. So he was used to being around non-Jewish women. So maybe this is part of the reason why he showed such, such kindness to this Moabite. And so we read their exchange in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 2. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, 
Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Ruth's kindness and devotion to Naomi and to the Lord is finally recognized. In fact, these are the first kind words that we read spoken to Ruth. Boaz asks her here to continue to glean in his field throughout the entire harvest season, offering her protection and water. And in fact, later on that evening, after Ruth has worked all day in the hot sun, he gives her a feast, an enormous meal, and gives her three weeks' worth of grain to take home with her to feed both her and Naomi. Ruth showed an amazing amount of kindness, but Boaz went far above and beyond in repaying that kindness. He went far above and beyond his duty to the poor and went out of his way to provide for this foreign woman in need. Now, the contemporary relevance of Boaz's uber-kindness is not lost on me here to this immigrant woman working in the fields. And I hope it's not lost on any of us. Now, I'm not going to make any political statements <laughs> about some of the things going on, but I'm just going to say this. Nowhere in Scripture do you ever see godly people mistreating the poor or immigrants or those who cannot defend themselves. It is not found anywhere by godly men and women. In fact, Scripture commands us to do everything we can to take care of the sojourner and the immigrant and the oppressed in our midst. Godly individuals are called to show kindness, mercy, and grace to these people just as God has shown us. And he makes that clear that he expects all of these men, women, and children to be treated the same way that he has treated us. Now, the text isn't trying to highlight this scriptural truth. Other, other Bible passages talk about this. But I'm just going to take Boaz's example and make sure that we're not missing that because we know what's going on in our country right now and we need to be people who speak truth into that. Amen? That was weak. I want, a, I want a better amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Ruth brings home this feast to Naomi, and for the first time in verse 20 of chapter 2, we see Naomi begin to soften 
as she recognizes that the Lord has blessed them, really, for the first time, to her mind, in this narrative with this food. But when Naomi learns that the man who had showed Ruth such kindness was Boaz, she begins to, to hatch a plan to save these two women out of poverty for good. And, and the stage is set for chapter 3, where we see Ruth's daring proposal. Ruth's daring. Now, Ruth continued to glean in Boaz's field throughout the remainder of the barley and wheat harvests, which was about six to eight weeks longer, which would have put them at the time of the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. We know what Pentecost is. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Having experienced the first fruit of God's blessings in the form of Boaz's kindness at Passover, which is, ends with the Feast of First Fruits, the stage was now set for an even greater blessing to be poured out on Ruth and Naomi. See, Naomi recognized that Boaz was a close relative of Elimelech and therefore could qualify as what is known as a kinsman redeemer for both she and Ruth. And this means basically that Elimelech owned a field, and since he was dead, now Naomi owns the field, and a family member who was close was able to buy that field from Naomi so that she would have money to survive, and that family member would be allowed to marry Naomi or, in this case, Ruth, to try to provide an heir for them that would then be able to inherit that land back and take care of Naomi and Ruth as they got older. That was how the system worked. So in chapter 3, Naomi describes her plan to win Boaz to Ruth. And though... <laughs> Though her heart seems to have begun to soften towards the Lord's kindness and faithfulness, Naomi still doesn't seem to fully trust in the Lord to provide as she instructs Ruth to basically throw herself at Boaz. It seems that Naomi still is kind of doing some things according to what is right in her own eyes. And we can read her instructions in chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley wheat tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. Now, commentators are widely split on how to properly interpret Naomi's instructions to Ruth. But the text here makes pretty clear that Naomi says, Ruth, you get all dolled up. You make yourself look and smell good. And then in the middle of the night, you go and you lay down next to that guy. And you wake him up and you wait for him to tell you what to do next. Now, you can imagine how many men might handle that situation, especially given the history and reputation of the Moabite women. But for her part, Ruth complies with almost everything. 
She gets all dolled up and heads to the threshing floor and waits till midnight, the text says, before she goes and wakes Boaz. But then we see that Ruth daringly diverges from Naomi's instructions. Once Boaz asks who she is, she answers but then doesn't remain silent, like Naomi told her to do. Ruth speaks up, and we read the exchange here in verse 9. Boaz said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She uses the language in Boaz's original blessing to her in chapter 2, verse 12. If I were you, by the way, I would, I would circle 3-9, and I would circle 2-12, and I'd Right, draw arrows between them or make a note between them because this is a critical cross-reference that, that Ruth is doing here. Remember, Ruth 2.12 says, The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth basically takes that blessing around and she says, Boaz, you can be the answer to your own prayer for me. Why? How do we know this? Well, in ancient times, spreading a garment over someone was to, to claim them. Basically, in this context, to show that you were betrothing yourself to them, that you were going to get married. Ruth was directly asking Boaz to marry her, which was absolutely unheard of in these ancient times. No woman would ever ask a man to marry them. It was not done. Ruth had some chutzpah here, all right? She didn't follow Naomi's instructions. She just was honest. Ooh, there's an, a thought. Let's just be honest. And being the godly man that he is, Boaz subdues any temptation he may have had toward lust, and he pushes aside any anger he may have had at her forwardness, and the text says that he was honored by her request, and he agrees to marry her right on the spot. But the problem is, there's someone else in the picture who is a closer relative to Elimelech, and so by law, he has right, the first right, basically, to be the kinsman redeemer. So, they need to get that taken care of. And that's chapter 4. But we see here that Ruth's daring request of Boaz pays off. She doesn't try to win Boaz through any untoward means. She's honest with him. And again, the kindness of the Lord comes through Boaz. And can we just remind ourselves here that the Lord delights in giving good gifts to his children? How many of you know that? Matthew 7, 11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? When we're pursuing the will of the Lord, we should boldly approach the throne of grace. And ask him to pour out his blessing. 
There's nothing wrong with that. Now, we don't ask to spend on our own passions like James 4 talks about, right? James 4 says, you have because you do not ask or you ask because you want to spend it wrongly on your own passions, right? We don't do that. But if we're seeking the will of the Lord, if we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. Why? Because our desires are His desires for us. Amen? Daringly ask our Father, for His good gifts, which might not be the gifts you're looking for sometimes. And that's the thing that's hard to learn and mature and grow in. So we come to chapter 4 and the end of the story. Boaz gathers the elders together at the gate, and you can read it. He basically presents it, and the guy who had the opportunity to buy the field and marry Ruth declines when he finds out that he would have to marry Ruth. We won't need to get into it, but basically, it's a bad business decision. It's not good business to buy a field, pay a bunch of money, and then potentially have to give it back to them later to the heir. But Boaz, for his part, he has no problem sacrificially giving of himself over and over, and he immediately commits to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And so the women, praise God, are delivered. And even more so, they are blessed as Ruth and Boaz have a son. Whereas the women of Bethlehem who were formerly listening to Naomi speak of how bitter she was over the Lord's treatment, the story closes with these same women blessing the Lord and praising Him over how well He has treated Naomi and the amazing love and devotion that Ruth has for her mother-in-law. And we read this in verses 14 through 17 of chapter 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David the king, which means that Ruth and Boaz or in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous honor for these people of God. So as we conclude, I just have a couple of, of quick takeaways that I want to highlight. Boaz, of course, is the type of Christ who is constantly sacrificing and giving of himself. And let's just be reminded of the great faithfulness of our God, right? Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Amen? We, we should praise our God for His faithfulness to us. And then we have Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth, each one standing for different types of people in the world. Elimelech he heard truth and seemingly disregarded it to do what was right in his own eyes. And, and you who are here today, you're hearing truth. And I'm just going to make it crystal clear from you, for you. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing but death in this world. That's it. Unless we receive the free gift of God's grace by putting our trust 
and submit to Jesus in receiving that salvation, unless we receive the Holy Spirit and we are transformed to be more and more like Christ, walking in the work that He has invited us to do until He returns, learning to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Unless those things happen in our lives, unless we choose to leave Moab, our way will end in death. That's just the way it is. We all have a choice, and none of us are without excuse because we have truth right here. I pray that we have no Elimelechs among us today. And if you think you might be one, guess what? It's not too late. How do I know that? Because you're not dead yet. Right? It's like, I'm not dead yet. I think I'll go for a walk. I feel that. Monty Python, sorry. I quote the whole movie. Anyway, right? There's still time to turn from Moab and return to the promised land. Now we have Ruth, on the other hand, who just seems to make good godly decisions everywhere she goes. And the interesting thing here is that Ruth in the Hebrew Bible, called the Tanakh, comes immediately after Proverbs, different order of things. But what's the last chapter of Proverbs? Proverbs 31, which tells us all about what we should look for in the godly women to marry. Well, if you know your Bible, you know that those of us who have put our faith in Christ are called the bride of Christ. Basically, Ruth is just the example of what a good disciple of Jesus looks like. Someone who's going to go through some really, really difficult times. Her husband died, had no food, had to go and work in the hot fields, toil and labor. That's not easy stuff. But she continued to trust in the Lord, choosing to pursue him. And the Lord honored that and ultimately blessed her. Be encouraged by that, especially if you're going through hard times. Continue to cling to our God. And then finally, we have Naomi. And if you're like me, you relate most closely with her. <laughs> she made a lot of mistakes. Now, she had faith. Clearly, that was the case because the Lord used her to minister to Ruth and draw Ruth to him. But Naomi went through some really difficult times that dimmed her faith and caused her to doubt, caused her to stray. Church, when things go wrong with us and go wrong in our lives, the first thing we need to do is examine ourselves and see if the Lord is showing us if there's anything sinful within us. That's where Naomi went wrong. She didn't do that. She just blamed God. And if there is, we repent of that and turn to his grace and mercy. But sometimes there's going to be tough times where there's no apparent sin. It happens. There are trials and tests and tribulations. Well, in those circumstances, we need to be like Ruth and cling to our God. But can I just say, praise God that despite Naomi's bitter and doubting heart, the Lord still blessed her. We have to see that. Can I have an amen for our amazingly patient God with us? Amen. Like, we should be so thankful for him. That he does this time and time again, even in the midst of our bitter, doubting hearts. We have a God who is exceedingly gracious and merciful. So by the grace of God, 
Let us treat others like Boaz did. Let us trust in the Lord like Ruth did. And let us let go of bitterness and doubt and joyfully worship our God as we see his blessing in our lives, just like Naomi did in the end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.